Welcome to the Triple Point Podcast, a podcast for those working at the intersection of weather and climate, technology, and society. We focus on innovators and leaders working to make our community safe and resilient in the face of a dynamic and ever-changing world. I'm your host, Ryan Harris. And this month, we kick off the new year talking about risk perceptions with a great first guest, Brian Lamar, the meteorologist in charge at the Tampa Bay office of the National Weather Service. Using Hurricane Ian and some recent El Nino-driven severe weather, we talk about what his office and meteorologists in general are doing to better communicate weather risk. We hope you enjoyed the first episode of 2024 and encourage you to share the podcast with others if you're enjoying it. For now, on with the show. Well, happy 2024, everyone. It was a great 2023. Hopefully you had a chance to listen to our compilation episode in December. Had a lot of great guests last year, everyone from Bonnie Schneider to we ended up with Wayne McKenzie uh, at the end of the year talking about improv theater. So just a wide range of topics from AI, geoengineering, and a whole lot of other things. We got a great guest today. Brian Lamar joins us from National Weather Service office in Tampa. Florida, and we're looking forward to having our first conversation of the year with him. So much to talk about, both in terms of current weather, but also about risk perception with respect to weather and climate. But before we dive into that, um, I think it's good to kind of hit a few of the news items that are going on right now. At the end of the year last year, it turned out that 2023 was indeed officially the warmest year on record. We're going to put a link in the show notes from Copernicus um, with some really interesting graphs that put in detail how that warmest year shaped out to be. But we also have a lot of current weather events going on. I found it really intriguing and interesting out on the West Coast, um, these monster waves battering the California coast. And this is a few weeks old by now, but uh, the story was still really interesting to me. Uh, All the surfers had had a heyday out there, and we hadn't seen those kind of waves before. California hadn't in, in quite a while, and it was just kind of the the perfect storm, if you will, between significant severe wind storm over the Pacific. You had Kelvin waves as, as a result of the El Nino that's going on. And you had the significant uh, lunar um, effect as well, uh, affecting the, the, the tides and the waves there. So all combined to create quite a headache for the surfers out there. And we got our own severe weather here in Florida uh, over the last uh, over the last couple months. Even just as as early as just yesterday, um, a cold frontal boundary came through, provided uh, a few tornadoes across Florida, as well as sixty mile an hour winds. And we see that a lot actually in El Nino. And we're going to talk a little bit about that with with Brian uh, in, in our show today. So let's go ahead and bring him on and uh, introduce him. So. Brian Lamar is the meteorologist in charge of the Tampa Bay Area Weather Forecast Office of the National Weather Service. He began his career as a student volunteer at the Weather Service Office in Hartford, Connecticut in 1992, and has hopped around the Weather Service ever since. He's been the recipient of multiple awards through his career and has worked through high-profile events such as the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico and major hurricanes like Hurricane Ian in 2022. Brian serves as the Florida Governor's Hurricane Conference Board of Directors and has served on boards and committees with the American Meteorological Society and National Weather Association to help promote weather education and specialized operational services. Education is something we talk about a lot on this podcast. 
Brian earned his Bachelor's of Science in Meteorology in 1994 from Western Connecticut State University and Master's in Management specializing in Leadership, Innovation, and Organizational Change in 2014 from Walden University. Brian, it's great to have you on the show to kick us off in 2024. Hey, thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me on the Triple Point podcast. Definitely looking forward to our conversation today. I've been looking forward to this as, as well. Uh, you know, we got to connect uh, at a recent local AMS chapter meeting um, or, you know, at following a local AMS chapter meeting um, and trying to do some planning with the local AMS here. But um, one of the first questions we always ask our guests is, is how, how would you describe your journey up to this point? It definitely started off uh, with that strong interest in meteorology that I think any any weather enthusiast or meteorologist has, you know, when they start off as a young child, there's always some type of weather event that gets them interested and gets them started on their journey. And and mine was actually the uh, blizzard of 1978. I grew up in Connecticut. And so the blizzard of 78, I was just a little kid uh, and it was pretty wild going through that storm. Saw thunder snow, you know, that was pretty interesting up there and just really put the question of, you know, how and why, you know, why is this going on? So it really, you know, put that interest in me at a young age. And, and not long after that, Hurricane Gloria, in 1985, uh, hit Connecticut after moving up the East Coast, and and my, I remember my parents bringing my brother and I into the basement uh, for that storm. We had basements up there, unlike most of Florida, where if you dig too deep, you're going to hit the Gulf of Mexico. But yeah, we were up there, and it, it was pretty pretty scary at first. I mean, uh, you know, the hurricane didn't really produce as much damage uh, in Central Connecticut, but just going through that as a as a kid. It definitely leaves uh, a memory. So I find it really interesting. If, if you talk to most meteorologists, there's usually at least one weather event in, in their life that really shaped um, and got them, maybe got them interested. Um, and a lot of meteorologists have known ever since a really young age that, you know, they wanted to be, you know, a weatherman or a meteorologist. Um, I've, I've got a, a similar story from, from the Midwest. That's really interesting. Uh, both snowstorm and then hurricanes, which is, you know, something you're focused on quite a bit. So so last year, you know, we expected to see less hurricane activity, at least at the beginning of the hurricane season last year, because El Nino is starting to cook up. That usually produces some wind shear that decreases the chances of hurricane production in the Atlantic. But it didn't turn out that way, right? El Nino actually um, the, the warmer sea surface temperatures kind of overcame the effects of maybe some of that wind shear. And so we saw El Nino propelling last year. You know, the year was the warmest on record globally, brought us this, you know, it enhanced the opportunity for us to see this severe weather here recently, continues to influence weather patterns here locally, but also around the world. How did your team do last night? And you know, maybe you can talk about how your forecasters kind of use those longer range teleconnections like El Nino to communicate about uh, today's weather. Yeah, you're right. So we're looking at the El Nino season, as we saw with the last hurricane season, it was above normal for the numbers of how many storms have formed and even the one that formed, you know, in January of last year, you know, subtropical storm that didn't have a name. And we were watching as, El Nino was producing the stronger winds over the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. And traditionally that would reduce the number of storms that would develop over, you know, what we call like the main development region in the Atlantic. But like you said earlier, you know, the, the above normal temperatures is really what was on the other side of the coin and actually had a little bit more weight and allowed for a lot more development to occur. So the above normal warm temperatures in the, in the Atlantic and the Gulf 
the sea surface temperatures really kind of compensated for the stronger winds that were going over the the Gulf and the Caribbean. But remember, we only had one landfall, you know, hurricane last year. Which, Dahlia, right? Yeah, exactly. So Adalia moved right up our coast and the whole entire west coast of Florida experienced coastal flooding from a storm that was, you know, 100, 150 miles west of us and made landfall, you know, to the north of Cedar Key and, and produced a lot of damage in that area. So since then, since Adalia, you know, we've been seeing the traditional El Nino weather pattern really produce what we would expect it to. And especially in Florida for the winter is usually above normal severe thunderstorm and tornado development, you know, that that strong jet stream that blows across the Gulf of Mexico that typically would reduce hurricane development actually increases the potential for severe thunderstorms. So while hurricanes and tropical storms don't want to have strong winds above their head and then get ripped apart, uh, you know, we all know severe thunderstorms and tornadoes need that strong wind to evacuate the air above the thunderstorm. And, and we saw that in October, you know, we saw that in mid-December, and we saw that last night as we had, you know, a strong squall line ahead of a cold front uh, race across the Gulf of Mexico. And, and we had tornadoes across portions of the Tampa Bay area. Yeah, I saw the one report uh, just east of St. Petersburg. And, you know, um, I mean, I was watching the radar yesterday and I saw and y'all, you know, your office issued on that a uh, couple of tornado vortex signatures, probably water spouts just off the coast near Clearwater. Um, you know, two couplets, you know, right, right next to each other. Yeah, we're on the spot in terms of uh, warning on that. And, and I remember like last fall, same thing, like I'm going to bed and I'm seeing, you know, these almost classic, you know, they weren't almost, they were classic, like hook echo, like this are things that normally I'm used to seeing in, in you know, the, in Oklahoma and the Midwest. And, you know, you got these little curly cues off the, off the coast of Florida. Speaking of, you, you know, your office um, and, and most who listen to the Triple Point podcast have heard of or worked with um, the National Weather Service. But can you give a short synopsis of the purpose of the Weather Service, how it's structured, and you know how the different components or roles you have within the Weather Forecast Office? That's a great question, Ryan, and and it actually goes back into you know the history of you know the National Weather Service. So you know, going back to 1870 is when this agency first had its roots and we were called the Weather Bureau, you know, the U.S. Weather Bureau. And we're connected to the uh, Army Signal Corps. And then we moved to the Department of Agriculture. And it was not until 1970 when uh, NOAA was formed. So there used to be an agency called the Environmental Science Service Administration before that. And that became NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And that's when uh, the Weather Bureau then became renamed to uh, the National Weather Service in 1970. And so we became part of NOAA, and NOAA is part of the U.S. Department of Commerce. So we have a lot of layers, uh, which is very typical of the federal government. So we are, we operate under the executive branch of government. So, you know, we have the executive branch, we have the judicial branch and the legislative branch. We're under the executive branch. So Department of Commerce, NOAA, National Weather Service, and the National Weather Service is, a, is also a large organization. We have about 122 what we call field offices or uh, weather forecast offices, and they're stretched across the entire country, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Guam. We cover every square inch of soil of the United States and its territories. And we have uh, regions. We have six National Weather Service regions. We have national centers, you know, some of the most popular ones, you know, the National Hurricane Center. In Miami, they're part of the National Weather Service. We have the Storm Prediction Center in Norman, Oklahoma. 
and even ranging as space weather uh, prediction center in Boulder, Colorado to aviation weather. There are many national centers that specialize on certain aspects of weather. But our job, you know, at the field office, you know, we're here 24-7, you know, 365 days out of the year. And we're monitoring the conditions. We're producing the forecasts and warnings. And we're coordinating. I think our main mission element is coordinated with emergency management, coordinating with media to make sure that not only do we put out the information for them to ensure public safety, but we have a continuous dialogue with emergency managers, elected officials, media representatives. And, and a perfect example is like what you talked about earlier last night. You know, we were talking one-on-one with our TV stations across Tampa Bay and Fort Myers and Sarasota and making sure that the information was getting out. We were talking with emergency managers and making sure that they knew where some of the main impacts were going to be so that they could help people. So it's definitely evolved over the years. You know, when I first started my career, as you mentioned earlier, as a student volunteer up in Hartford, Connecticut, back in 1992, you know, it was pretty much just, we're producing the forecast, we're issuing the warning and our job is done. And and now it is much more of a collaborative effort. You know, we're talking with emergency managers before, during, and after we issue warnings. And we're talking with folks that are broadcasting that information on TV. So it it's amazing journey over the past over 30 years, you know, that I've been with the National Weather Service and NOAA to really see the transformation of our agency to be more people centric. You know, we're more collaborative and it's really impressive and has been really exciting. And, and we're just getting started. There's so many new changes coming our way with technology. And I think for people listening that are just getting into the field of meteorology or people that have been in the field for many years. There's so much more that we're going to be doing in the future. Yeah, I really like the the direction, you know, that we're moving as a community, the weather service, but also, you know, private industry. I think we're all generally moving in in the right direction. And and we talk a lot on this show about, you know, what we're going to talk about today a little bit more in detail is the, the risk perception. So from your early days to, you know, today, obviously, the idea of risk perception has evolved significantly. You know, you've had during that time, you've had FEMA, which didn't exist in its current form in 1992. FEMA has taken on, you know, more of that role, being proactive. You know, a lot of events such as Hurricane Katrina and some of the failures that happens in either warning the public, uh, identifying the level of warning, you know, the communities not taking their proper precautions based on the warning information that the, uh, the Weather Service and the Hurricane Center were providing. But then you still have this chasm of human decision-making. And it is actually something that I, that I wrote about in, in an article following Hurricane Ian, you know, a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago, in, in that it there created kind of this perfect storm, Hurricane Ian did at least, I feel like, that no matter how much perfect science you can have, if you don't communicate it well, or if people don't understand the risk and the steps that they can take, then you know th- there's lots of failures that can happen. So what I pointed out in that article is for Hurricane Ian, you had a surge in population unfamiliar with hurricane preparedness. You all these people moving to Florida who really don't know about what to do in advance or when a hurricane's coming. Then you have a resident population, maybe who have been there for years and years, and maybe they're skeptical about the benefits of evacuating after, let's say, Hurricane Irma happened, you know, night 2017, I think it was. And 
both sides of the Florida Peninsula are, are, are told to evacuate because of our uncertainty in the forecast track, right? So they're like, heck no, I'm not evacuating again. I'm not getting stuck in, in, in you know, 16 hours of traffic. And then you have this potential shift in the risk. All it takes is a slight wiggle in the hurricane track, especially the way that Ian was, was tracking. And that shifted a track, you know, 100 miles over a period of 36 to 48 hours. That's a long-winded kind of intro to my question here, but like we've seen the risk perception change over time. We're moving in the right direction, but you're actually going to be presenting on this at the upcoming AMS meeting in Baltimore. Can you kind of give listeners a sneak preview of what you plan to talk about regarding risk perception? And then we're going to dive into this a little bit more because I think it's a really important topic. It is. And risk management, risk perception, the psychology of decision making, you know, during high impact weather events, or uh, it could be hurricanes, it could be, uh, you know, any natural disaster. It, it's definitely a topic that we're becoming more versed in, unfortunately, because we're seeing more of these natural disasters impacting heavily populated areas. You know, we can go back to 1900 and the worst natural disaster, you know, the Galveston hurricane. So these storms have been impacting people for many, many years. And now we're seeing these storms impacting very highly populated areas and also more frequently. And so we're looking at the intersection of meteorology with psychology, with social science, and also with emergency response. So all of those disciplines that used to be very stovepiped, you know, you would go to college, you would learn about psychology, you would learn about meteorology, you know, you, you wouldn't have a connection between all of them. And so we're seeing more of a need for that now. A lot of us in the National Weather Service were going through specific training on emergency response, on social science aspects, on not only how do people make decisions, but why do people make decisions and how can we influence that as meteorologists? I can tell you right now, we can't do it alone. You know, we are working with social science scientists across the country. Uh, the presentation I gave at the Florida Governor's Hurricane Conference in uh, May of 2023 I was joined with a whole panel of experts of emergency managers, uh, psychologists, social scientists, and working with uh, professors from University of Alabama to really tackle this challenge. And Hurricane Ian, like you mentioned, has been a centerpiece on that because it's been one more recent. You know, we can go back to Hurricane Andrew of 1992 and have a similar conversation, but Hurricane Ian kind of brought together a lot of these factors in one area. You know, you look at Southwest Florida, where Hurricane Ian made landfall, you know, on, on that day. And you're looking at a, a population, there was an elderly population. There were people that maybe English was not their first language. So there was a, a language barrier. You're looking at people that may not have the resources to actually evacuate when they're told to evacuate. And we also talked to, I personally spoke with people that and this is this is an interesting one. You know, this one can get me choked up uh, many times when I talk about it. But talking to people who did not want to leave out of fear that they won't be allowed to return back to their home. The majority of the people that lost their life were senior citizens. You know, they were 60, 70, 80 years old. And most at that age may not have full cognitive ability and may not have all the mental capacities to make a decision that may protect their life. And they may or may not have friends or family in the area. So there were people that made life-changing decisions that could have survived, you know, and, and they could have survived. 
however, when water was rising so rapidly, uh, some of them chose to try to get into their vehicle and get out of the area. Uh, that was the wrong choice. We've been talking about something called vertical evacuation nowadays, uh, where, okay, as a message of last resort, that if you did not already evacuate and heed the orders of officials, then, okay, well, now you may have to have a chainsaw and bring it to your attic and cut yourself out of your attic. You know, these are conversations that you would think never would be needed to happen, but it's needed to happen. And it happened during Hurricane Harvey in 2017 in Houston. You know, people were being rescued off their roofs because storm surge and flooding was just forcing them to evacuate vertically and they didn't leave the area previously. So again, a number of factors came into play during Hurricane Ian. When we look at the psychology of evacuation, we've seen through many storms a very similar pattern. You know, there was a study done by a researcher up in New England after Hurricane Sandy in 2012. And this survey, this research has been replicated a number of times with hurricanes that have made landfall. And we're seeing that there's a certain number of population, a certain percentage of the population that will leave right when they hear that a hurricane has formed in the Atlantic Ocean. They're not going to take any chances. We call them the diehards. You know, they're going to they're going to see, oh, a hurricane's in the Atlantic. I'm going to get out of the area. I'm going to evacuate. You know, that may be extreme, but off they go, you know. And then there's another percentage of the population that are going to wait and see. You know, they're going to wait until that cone of uncertainty, as we call it, is over their area. And maybe at that point, they're going to leave. Okay. And then there's Another percentage of the population, which actually is almost about 48% from these research studies that are going to stay and just wait and see what will happen. They're going to wait for the watcher warning to be issued, and they may or may not leave at that point. But we're seeing that there is a large percentage of people that are going to just kind of stay and wait. And unfortunately, those are the people that end up losing their lives from either water uh, during the storm, or it could be after the storm. You know, we're seeing that many people lose their life after the storm because it could be people that have heart attacks. It could be people that are electrocuted when they're out there and they shouldn't be walking around and come across a live wire. So there is a number of hazards that are taking the lives of people unnecessarily. And like I said, thousands of people lost their life in 1900 hurricane you know, in Galveston, and we're looking at improvements. We're seeing that the loss of life is reducing over the years, thanks to technology, thanks to better watches and warnings. You know, we're getting better at tracking these storms. We're getting better at forecasting what's called rapid intensification. However, we still have work to do. And when I say we, I don't just mean meteorologists. I mean, those disciplines that I talked about, emergency response, psychology, sociology, but also just people need to truly believe that a hurricane can truly wreak havoc in their area and they need to respect it and get out of the way. You know, when I think about 48%, that's a lot higher than I expected you to say. I knew it was high, but not close to 50%, just like the wait and see crowd. I wrote about this in, in that article um, that I wrote last year, and I'll put, we'll put a link in the show notes on that too. But the lived experience or lack of lived experience really plays at the psychology here, right? So, and I think this is 
I mean, this is true for weather events, but also climate, climate change and that sort of thing. When, when, when people hear about climate change, that's even more esoteric for people to kind of grapple and grasp onto because they're like, well, I haven't experienced climate change or, you know, like um, it, it's very difficult if, if they haven't had, you know, let's say increase in sunny day flooding and, and they're, you know, on, on the coastline or that sort of thing. Or if you're out west, you know, the increase potentially in wildfires that it, if they haven't experienced it, they're going to remain in that wait and see crowd. Right. And so that's why, like, if you have a huge population increase with people retiring and moving down to Florida and they've never experienced a hurricane before. They may have heard about it, but they're like, eh, how, how, how bad could it be? I've been through some bad storms. You know, how bad could it be? And so it, it really astonishes me that we do have all these advancements. We do have good science. We do have better communication than, than you had when you came in you know, the service back in 1992. And yet we still have, you know, over 100 deaths last year, um, or excuse me, in 2022 with, with Hurricane Ian. Every forecast office has a warning coordination meteorologist that, you know, um, goes out and, and canvases and gets with the community. But can you talk about, you know, whether it's the WCM role or maybe your partnerships with, you talked about a little bit already with like the media and local emergency managers, but what are the, some of the things that your office and other forecast offices are doing to break down those risk perception barriers? It's definitely going to be, you know, repetition, you know, and one person such as the warning coordination meteorologist can't do it all. And so that's why every office, you know, has that one individual, the warning coordination meteorologist. I used to do that at the office in Lubbock, Texas. And it really involves bringing other people from the office together. It involves bringing people from outside the office together. So the main person, you know, that person is is responsible for doing that and, and working with emergency management, working with media, you know, leading public campaigns for understanding the true risk of that area. So while it may be, you know, the office in Buffalo, New York may be out there focusing on, okay, this is the risk for you know, extreme cold events, extreme blizzard events, lake effect snow, and don't get caught on the highway when this particular snow ban may be over your area. We won't have that here in Tampa. However, we will be talking about, okay, what's it like when we have extreme heat indices? What's it like when we have temperatures below 40 degrees? And we work with our county emergency management offices that open up cold air shelters, which is actually 40 degrees is actually a trigger for this area of central Florida for homeless people and people that need assistance. When we look at hurricanes and we look at severe weather, that's a different animal. And so there's things that we can do, say last night with tornadoes, shelter in place. You know, as long as you're in a well-built home or building some type of structure that has an interior room like a closet or a bathroom, you can withstand not all, but most of the tornadoes that we have in this area. And so people need to know where is that room in their home or school or business you know, and if I, if it's at two in the morning, how am I going to know that tornado warning is coming our way? So you have to have multiple ways of receiving severe weather information. I'm going to grab my phone over here. You know, well, we're not on video, but I'm holding my phone and most of us have a cell phone. That's one way of receiving warnings. But you have to make sure that your phone has the settings turned on to receive those warnings. You know, sometimes false alarms go out or sometimes we issue a tornado warning and it's for someone in city A and city B 20 miles away didn't get it. 
well, those folks think that we busted the forecast and they're going to turn off the warning on their phone. Well, please don't do that because the day may come when your area will get that exact, you know, impact. Uh, NOAA Weather Radio is something that we recommend. You know, that's 24 hours a day broadcast of weather information. And when we issue severe thunderstorm warnings or watches or hurricane watches or warnings, that alarm is going to go off on that radio. You know, so that that's another way of getting it and, and making sure that you're watching your favorite television station to listen to those on camera broadcast meteorologists. And they're going to be telling you the information that you need to know that comes from us and from them. We have a strong partnership with them. Uh, we have a 24 hour chat system with all of the TV stations across the area that we're chatting with them throughout these events. So it is definitely what we call an integrated warning team. And that is National Weather Service, emergency management, and local media. And then you go back to, again, the decision-making process takes everyone out there, whether you love weather or not, you know, you have to understand what are the impacts in the area that I'm living in. You mentioned that, okay, the tornadoes that we had last night and the tornadoes we had in October were the traditional looking Oklahoma style, Kansas style supercells with the hook echoes. And you're right. And Florida does get them. And unfortunately, this is the weather pattern, El Nino and winter in Florida. We can get those traditional supercell thunderstorms that produce uh, long-lived tornadoes. It's not just the the old uh, summertime water spout that may form and it will weaken right when it hits the beach. These types of severe thunderstorms, they don't care if they're on land or water. They're not going to weaken until other processes happen. But no, this is typical for Florida during an El Nino winter. And, you know, a lot of people remember how we rate tornadoes, you know, F4s, F5s, F0s, whatever it may be. Florida has never seen an F5 tornado, at least in observable measured history. However, we've seen two F4 tornadoes, and they were in April of 1958, and they were in April of 1966, and they were in the Tampa Bay area. So they occurred in central Florida, uh, Pinellas County, Hillsborough County, Polk County, eastward. So central Florida experienced the impacts of F4s. And so it can happen again. It will happen again. Something to think about about that damage scale, too, is that it's based entirely on damage. So that tornado has to damage something in order for it to get a rating of zero through five. And it's an engineering scale. And it's not like the hurricane scale where it's based on wind speed, category one through five. Uh, this is based entirely on damage. So again, we, we try to have the intersection of uh, engineering and meteorology when it comes to uh, tornadoes. But again, back to response, have multiple ways of receiving warnings from us and, and really use social media to our advantage. You know, there's a lot of pros and cons with social media. You know, I like to focus on the positives. It's another way of getting weather information, but there's a lot of misinformation out there. And you want to make sure that you are listening to trusted sources when it comes to severe weather information. Yeah, you want to maintain, you know, connection with the authoritative sources that are out there. I want to go back to Hurricane Ian for just a moment because, you know, we won't get into specific counties or cities that that did or did not make, you know, good decisions. But I think about how the weather service does like helps with incident command um, with respect to particularly wildfires, right? Weather service has a really great program to actually put weather 
forecasters in the field with firefighters and emergency management crews to really be in the field to help direct the, the you know, where to fight the fire and that sort of thing. Granted, I, I realize this is a completely different animal when we talk about like hurricanes in particular, and there are more jurisdictions involved. And so that's probably part of the answer to my next question. But has there ever been any talk about getting weather forecasters into any sort of incident command? You know, um, I, I know that you all engage and interface with all these emergency, these county and city emergency management officials, but there were some probably decisions that could have probably been made um, by some of these communities. And when I say communities, I mean like the emergency management communities and or the elected officials, really. That that's a really tricky nut that, you know, we're not going to crack, you know, completely on this on this podcast, but elected officials, political, whatnot, there, there's an element of human decision making there that you're just not going to crack the nut on. Right. So going back to that question, like how's the weather forecast office involved specifically, you know, and is is there any talk about this incident command similar to how we uh, the weather service supports wildfires? There's definitely a lot of a lot of topics in there that we could, you know, latch on to as well. You know, you're. For the Pi Weather Program, we have something called IMETs or Incident Meteorologists. And so IMETs are meteorologists that receive special training for fire weather response and also all hazards response. Uh, they typically go on site at an incident command post or with an interagency fire coordination center, and they're working specifically on a particular fire. And if we draw that parallel to, say, a hurricane, you know, we can talk about Hurricane Ian, for example. You know, at one time, you know, the first advisory from the National Hurricane Center with Hurricane Ian was 100% accurate of where that storm ultimately went. You know, it had a landfall in Lee County, and that's where it went. Of course, that was on a Friday when that forecast came out at 5 a.m., and Hurricane Ian made landfall at 3.05 p.m. on the following Wednesday. And in between that Friday and Wednesday, we all know the track kind of did a shift. You know, it was going from Southwest Florida. At one point, it was making landfall in Appalachian Bay up in the Panhandle. It came down to Tampa Bay. And, and that's where I say Tampa Bay for a reason, because that's where the uh, social science comes in, because people were anchoring on Tampa Bay. You know, they saw Tampa Bay in the headlines. Media at different levels were saying the words Tampa Bay. And because that was the big population center, when it moved a little bit north or south of Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay still stayed in people's memories on that one. And some people, you know, when we talk about psychology and sociology, you know, the anchoring aspect is they tune in and they see, oh, the track moved, it shifted, it's no longer in my area, it's in another area, and they feel relief. And they may not tune back in to see that that storm actually changed. And when they do turn back in, it may be either too late or they may now have reduced the amount of time they have to prepare and evacuate, whatever it may be. So Ian was a good example of that one where it went up the entire coastline and then went back down, you know, towards Southwest Florida. Now there were impacts all up and down, you know, the coastline from Hurricane Ian, whether it be storm surge or negative surge where the water leaves the coastline uh, or flooding rainfall that stretched from Fort Myers on up to Daytona Beach and people lost their lives along those flooded roadways and flooded areas. So it's definitely the hurricane is a, a beast of impacts. It's not just about the single point of landfall. You know, we, we look at where the strongest winds were. They were well outside the single point of landfall. 
you know, the heaviest rainfall well outside the single point of landfall. Uh, the greatest storm surge, 10 to 15 feet in uh, Charlotte, Lee, and Collier County, was within a very small zone of the eye wall, you know, of that landfall area. So again, we have to all know that. And how do we communicate that to the public who may not be savvy about hurricanes? So that's where it's a broad brush of, okay, evacuate or don't evacuate and things like that. But narrowing it back down to the parallel with a incident meteorologist and embedding someone into the incident command system, we go through the FEMA incident command structure training within the National Weather Service. We all have to. So that's required training. And we do that in partnership and inside an emergency operations center with emergency managers you know, across the United States and with FEMA as well and other state partners and other NOAA partners. During Hurricane Ian and during all hurricanes, we conduct every six hours webinars and conference calls, if you will. But now it used to be just a phone call that we're talking to them. Now we're on a webinar. We're showing them graphics. We're showing them uh, scenarios on if it were to go 10 miles to your left, to your right, what would that mean to your county? And so every six hours, we're having those conversations with all of the counties in our area responsibility. So the Tampa National Weather Service Forecast Office, we're responsible for 15 counties of West Central Southwest Florida, extending from Levy County down to Lee County or Cedar Key down to Fort Myers, you know, in this example. And we're helping them understand risk. So Hurricane Ian was very challenging given that uncertainty of where will it make landfall. So, you know, it doesn't matter, okay, elected officials, not elected officials, county evacuates or county doesn't evacuate. All of those conversations are happening. And ultimately someone has to make a decision on whether or not they're going to pull the trigger on an evacuation. And we're giving advice, you know, and we're talking about uncertainty. So it was definitely a hard decision to make, you know, for anyone. It was a hard decision for us to make of, okay, well, where are we going to narrow in on the threat? You know, where is the highest impacts going to be? And people in uh, Pinellas County, St. Petersburg, Tampa Bay were looking at evacuations and then it moved south. And all the water rushed out. And so people are like, yeah, I got all this warning and all the water rushed out instead of coming in. So that plays in the psychology as well, right? And in, in the lived experience, right? does exactly and and now think about it from a mariner's perspective someone you know in the you know navigation safety so now they can't get out you know if the water has left the area now that causes a problem for ships to uh come in and out of the area with life-saving goods and fuel and commerce and things like that so it's definitely a multifaceted approach we work closely with the u.s coast guard in those decisions and port tampa and other partners uh noaa's national ocean service is heavily involved in that but when we look back at, okay, we do send certain people during certain storms to a mercy operations center. Think about Hurricane Charlie, 2004, August 13, if memory serves, making landfall in the exact same location where Hurricane Ian made landfall, Cayo Costa on the barrier island of you know Charlotte and Lee County. Charlie was a much smaller storm, a much more compact storm. It was still a Category 5 before it, Category you know, 4 at landfall. And the impacts were much more confined to that smaller area. Now you look at Hurricane Ian, again, landfall, same exact area. The impacts were so much wider. You know, Hurricane Charlie storm surge was six or seven feet in Charlotte Harbor and Hurricane Ian, 10 to 15 feet. They're both category fours at landfall. And that goes back to what we talked about earlier, Ryan, with people's perception of threats because we told them in 2004 to evacuate from a 
Category 4 storm hurricane named Charlie, and they did or did not evacuate based on whatever reason. And for the folks that made that decision, now we're saying, okay, well, you have another Category 4 hurricane. This is named Ian. It's coming your way. I personally spoke to folks down in that area, Fort Myers and Charlotte and Lee County, that said, well, we didn't evacuate during Hurricane Charlie, and we didn't get the impacts. So you're telling us another Category 4 is coming, name me, and we're going to stay. And for some of those folks, they chose at their own peril. Yeah. And I, I actually, I looked at one of these counties too. I won't name the county, but I, I looked at one of these counties in 2017. They also got warnings about Hurricane Irma, right? And they evacuated, this county evacuated or put the evacuation order out at least 48 hours prior to. Um, and, and in this case with Hurricane Ian, it was 24 to 36 hours out, which, you know, by that time, you're still going to have a population that's not going to evacuate. You still have that 48%, the wait and sees. But I imagine out of those 100 plus people who perished, you would have had at least a subset of that that would still be living today, you know, had had different decisions been made. But so how do we, I mean, again, we're not going to solve this on, on a one hour podcast and triple point as much as I'd like to, our, our, our podcast to solve that. But what are some of the, whether it's a communication strategy or technology, what are some of the things at the top of your mind that are going to help us solve the, this risk perception or at least chip away at some of the ill perceptions of, of risk uh, going forward? I think we have to take ownership, you know, and when I say we, I mean everyone. We have to take ownership and personal accountability, personal responsibility on how are we going to respond to a particular event. You know, there's a lot of parallels with uh, meteorologists and medical doctors. And, you know, where am I going with that? You know, where, where is that? Where is that tangent? And, you know, if you think about it, so meteorologists, we use data, we use observational data, and we are going to assess the atmosphere. Okay. And we are going to do a prognosis. Okay. So we're going to do a diagnosis. We're going to see, okay, the temperature is this, we got the rainfall, we got the hurricane is moving in this direction. So we're diagnosing the condition. And now we're going to provide a prognosis or a forecast. And is it always right? No. Is it improving? Yes. And are we getting better? Yes. Now look at that with the medical field. Okay. I need, you know, I, I have a, a congenital heart defect uh, myself. And so what do I need to do? Okay. I know I have to take personal responsibility. I can't go to my cardiologist and say, okay, well, this is your responsibility and I need you to take care of this. That person can only do so much, but I wouldn't know about it unless the skilled practitioner told me about it. So that person told me about the condition. And so I can make changes in my lifestyle and I can take ownership of that condition and do something about it. I can exercise better. I can eat better. I might, you know, I have that choice and there's going to be consequences if I do and if I don't. And so that's very similar to any type of risk management approach. We have to own the situation. We have to know what is our individual responsibility and we have to know what is the responsibility of a skilled external party. So in this case, we have meteorologists that we are skilled in diagnosing the atmosphere and we're skilled at providing a forecast on here is a range of probabilities of an event occurring in your area. You know, it could be a 20% chance of showers. It could be a 10% chance that you'll have six feet or more of water storm surge coming into your home. Uh, we call that a low probability of a high impact event. That's significant, you know. 
if I was told that there was a, a 10% chance of getting hit by a car uh, when I leave my driveway, I probably would be extra cautious doing that. But if I was told there was a 10% chance of showers on a particular day, I'd be like, oh, who cares? You know, it, you got to weigh the risk and, uh, and benefit scenario on that one. So we have to really understand what are the hazards in our area. Let's learn more about it. Let's take individual responsibility. You know, let's evacuate when we're told to do so. And I'll be blunt. If we're not told to evacuate and we know that there's a hurricane that is coming towards the state of Florida, which at every point of Hurricane Ian's life cycle, a hurricane was coming towards the west coast of Florida. Doesn't matter if it's from Key West to Pensacola, the entire west coast of Florida. I personally would be a little bit alert. I would be wanting to watch the forecast at least once a day, okay? Because the forecast will change. I'll be honest with you. The forecast will change. Every six hours, there'll be an update. And that update will change based on the condition of the hurricane. So again, ownership of the process, know what you're going to do, know where you're going to go if that hurricane or tornado or high wind event is going to happen. What's your backup plan? You know, we, we have to, as citizens, as human beings living in the state of Florida, we have to really understand that we live in a highly vulnerable area. And what are we going to do when that storm comes our way? And I'll take that to another level of when we are good at that, Okay, when I have extra goods in my house to maybe survive for three days without power, I got to think about, okay, my parents, okay, my parents live not far away, okay, and they're in their 70s to near 80, they're going to need some help. So I may say, okay, you're leaving your place, you're coming to my house, you know, you're going to stay there because I'm going to be living here at the National Weather Service and sleeping on the floor (laughs) here under the desk of where I'm talking right now. And Think about people in your neighborhood. You know, if we all do that together, it's like a force multiplier. You know, we have to think about people that aren't able to take care of themselves. You know, maybe they need help cutting a brush or cutting some limbs near their home. And you're thinking, okay, well, why would I want to help my neighbor take in their trash cans? Why would I want to help my neighbor maybe bring in some loose objects? Well, I'll tell you why, because those loose objects are going to go through your window And when the hurricane force winds or tornado hits the area, you know, those loose objects are now going to be your problem versus your neighbor's problem. So again, it's really about what we call citizen science, community collaboration, that our decisions that we make or the lack thereof can actually impact people around us. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I'm so glad you mentioned the the medical doctor uh, connection, because it's something that I've, I actually have a really, really good friend from high school who's a medical doctor. And I've, and I've talked to him about this. I'm like, you know, doctors are not much different than meteorologists, right? There's a lot of uncertainty in how things get diagnosed in the prognosis, right? Like, oh, well, we, we think you have this. And so we'll throw this at this treatment at or that sort of thing. So really, really interesting that you, you brought that up. All right. Well, as we kind of um, get to, to the end of our discussion, um, there's a couple of questions that, you know, leading into our lightning round. What advice do you have for up and coming meteorologists looking for a future in the field? My advice would be be excited because the science is changing. It's getting better. The technology is just advancing so much than what we've seen over the years. You know, the radar technology, the satellite technology, you know, we hear about artificial intelligence and machine learning. All of those are coming together with some really high powered, what we call computer models or numerical weather prediction. 
and they're getting better, you know, so the our role as a meteorologist and students interested in becoming a meteorologist, it's, it's going to change. We have to have more people skills. We have to have more communication skills because the computer models are getting almost as good as the human forecaster. We'll always have a role to add value to the forecast. We'll see nuances of where something may not be scientifically accurate, but but trust me, they are going to exceed our ability to diagnose so many observation points. And we have to become better communicators. We have to become better messengers of threat, of risk. And we have to be better at helping people understand what do I need to do when X weather event comes our way? Yeah, I think that gets right at the heart of what we're talking about. Risk perception, the connection and the increase in uh, connection with social science and in, in, in our, our craft and in weather and climate science. All right. So last question before we head into the lightning round is prediction time. What is one dramatic change you expect in the weather and climate world 10 years from now? So 10 years from now, you know, I think I can look 10 years prior and, and, and forecasting the future, you know, that that's almost like a forecast methodology. Look at the past and do a hindcast and do a forecast of the future. You know, 10 years ago, we could look at high tides in this area, you know, and high tides did not create as much of a problem as they are doing today. That is just 10 years ago. We're seeing storms that are producing greater water impacts, whether it be from coastal flooding storm surge or even from heavier rainfall uh, because the earth has warmed. You know, that's a fact. You know, politics will go back and forth on why and who's responsible. But we look at scientific fact that we are warmer. OK, and so that means that we're going to see more rainfall. We're going to probably see slower moving storm systems. So looking 10 years into the future, we're going to be needing to really get better prepared for water impacts. And water is the number one killer from most storms uh, that are along the coast, whether it be hurricanes or coastal coastal storms. And we have to really understand that we need to do things differently. You know, we need to build differently. We need to prepare differently. And so, yeah, 10 years in the future, I think that's going to be one of our biggest risks is looking at, you know, how will coastal communities be able to become more resilient to landfalling tropical storms and coastal storms? And also heat, you know, how are we going to become more prepared and adaptable to increasing heat that impacts anyone from, you know, a sports player on a field that's practicing on a hot summer day to someone that's putting a roof on a home. And, and also the exciting part of that is really looking at how technology is going to adapt to make us more resilient with new technologies to help us be a little bit more prepared for those factors. Yeah, I think the coastal effects are really interesting from the standpoint that I, I I'm going to hazard a number here and it's probably not right, but it's a, it's a large number, but I think it's like something like 40% of our population in the U S lives within 10 miles of a coastline or something. It may be even higher than that. It, it's, it's just a significant percentage. Well, Brian, it's been great to have you uh, on the show before we uh, wrap up. There's three questions that we like to ask in our lightning round. We're actually shook it up here for 2024. So we have a different question in the middle, but we'll start off with the first one. And you kind of already might've hinted at this already, but what is the most memorable weather event in your life? You're right. I'll say Hurricane Ian and Hurricane Ian definitely sticks with me as one of the most memorable weather events, uh, most recent, most impactful, and definitely going to be top up there on the list. Yeah, indeed it, it, it was. And I uh, experienced that here as well, uh, here in the last couple of years. All right. So Choose your adventure. 
tornado chasing, skydiving, space tourist, or name your own? I think I've actually uh, been involved in some of the severe weather chasing and, and uh, helped train some folks that do that. So I'll skip that one. Uh, I would say uh, I would say skydiving. However, I've done indoor skydiving. So I'll say that, okay, I've done that. So I haven't done the real thing. I would go with space exploration. I think it's fascinating. I love astronomy. Astronomy is another field that I loved ever since I was a little kid. And just seeing the advances in the technology of what we're doing now, that would definitely be top on the list. Very cool. All right. What is your superpower? I would say my superpower is really bringing people together to help others. And so I've always been, uh, if, you know, people think about personality tests and things like that. I've been a big feeler on a really popular personality tests and uh, empath and really connect with people with empathy. And no, I think that that would actually be a superpower. You know, I've talked about that with some folks where it can be a positive and a negative, but no, helping others and bringing people together for a greater cause has always been my superpower. I think we're definitely on the same wavelength on that one. And, you know, in the topic of risk perception, I think it takes an empath to really connect with people in, in that way. So Brian, really appreciate you being on the triple point, but also really appreciate you and your office helping keep uh, the Southwest Florida community safe uh, out of the weather forecast office there in Tampa. Thanks so much for being on the triple point today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great talking to you and uh, definitely look forward to working with you in the future. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's triple point podcast. If you liked it, subscribe to our newsletter at triplepointpodcast.com. Give us a shout and a five-star rating on your favorite podcast station and tell your friends about it. Or you can email us at triplepointpodcast at the number 81degrees.com. Until next time, have a great week. <laughs>